Well, Mark chapter 1 then. We're working through it. We've got a, a couple more in Mark. Chapter 1, that is, before we move on to chapter 2. And I want to ask the, just a simple question, really, and it's, it's an interesting question to ask, really, isn't it? How, how do you draw a crowd? How do you gather people? How do you get people to come? I mean, if we had the answers to that, we'd probably be, you know, selling books or something. According to reports uh, that I read, read just this week, one of the largest crowds ever, ever gathered was in India in 2005 when a well-known televangelist conducted his India Healing Crusade. That's what it was called. According to reports, there were around, and get this, two million people in attendance on the third and final night of the crusade. What would that even look like? It was the largest recorded in history for a healing service, they say. The report continues, this endeavor was massive on every scale. The complex covers 13 million square feet. Almost 200,000 chairs were brought in, exhausting the area rental suppliers. Technicians erected 32 giant video screens around the grounds. Parking for 100,000 cars was provided, and bus services came from Bandra, Sion, Kurla, and Santa Cruz railway stations. Police and three security agencies, along with 20,000 volunteers, kept everything running smoothly. That makes organizing a, cheap, a church weekend look simple, doesn't it? But why did they come? Well, according to reports from CBN, they came for many reasons. Some to witness this historic gathering. I mean, it's just a spectacle, isn't it? Some for healing. Some out of curiosity. And some to see miracles. See, if you want to gather a crowd, if you want to draw a crowd, the general wisdom seems to be that you, you just offer them exactly what they want. So uh, in this case, supernatural spectaculars. That's what you're offering. And then you spread the word, do your publicity, and wait for them to come. It's quite simple, really. One youth minister I know, cynically quipped, if you want to grow the biggest youth group in town, Andy, it's really easy. Just put up a big so uh, poster at the front of your church saying, Friday night, free beer. Interesting comment, isn't it? So now we need to ask ourselves an honest question as a church. Do we want lots of people to come here? Do we want to draw a crowd? <laughs> Some people are, the elders are worrying where I'm going here with this. <laughs> Do we want to draw a crowd? Of course we want to draw a crowd. Of course we want to see the building full, don't we? We want to see that. So what are we prepared to offer? What will we do? What will we offer to draw a crowd? Well, the answers to those questions will seriously influence our priorities as a local church. So we need to get it right, what we're offering. And there's no better place to go for guidance than God's word. And in the verses that we read earlier, we get to look at Jesus' priorities in ministry. That's what you're seeing here. And he has three priorities in this particular text. They're, they're not necessarily in order of priority, if you see what I mean, but they are priorities. The first is people. Jesus gives us an example of how to relate to our neighbors. Secondly, prayer, an example of how to relate to God. And thirdly, preaching. Well, we'll get to that. 
So people, prayer, and preaching. Those are the priorities of Jesus. As we can remember that, it's quite a mouthful, isn't it? First of all, then, people. People. Now, you've got to remember where we left off last week, because the story's got a flow to it in Mark. And Mark's going really fast-paced here. So if you remember, we were on the Sabbath day. It's the Saturday morning, and we're in the town of Capernaum by the lovely lake. You can hear the waves lapping at the shore, can't you? Capernaum by the sea. And Jesus, along with his four disciples that he's just called off of the beach earlier, have gone to the local synagogue. And as they've entered... Um, Jesus has led a service in the synagogue. He's been handed the scriptures, and it's a service like that no one's likely ever to forget, isn't it? It's quite a radical service. His sermon was powerful and cutting. It's spoken with authority like no other teacher they've seen before. But as Jesus is getting into the sermon, suddenly there's an interruption. The cries of a demoniac in the synagogue. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And you remember last week, Jesus simply shuts up the demon by saying, muzzle it and come out. And to the amazement of the crowds, the demons are compelled to comply. No options. They must do what Jesus says. And the crowds are left blown away, aren't they? What is this authority? Even the demons obey him. Well, Mark seems to indicate that before the service is even over, if you have a look down at your page in verse 28, before it even finished here, news of the event goes out into the surrounding area. That's how exciting this is. And it spreads all around Galilee, we're told. So you can imagine it, whispers going around the synagogue as they see all of this happening. This is the healer we've been, we've been hearing about. Do you remember? He's been, he's, been, he's been preaching in the local area. This is him. This is that Jesus. The rumors are true. He is the real deal. Quick, go get Auntie Miriam. Let's see if he can do anything about her gammy hip. Yeah? Go get the boy from Corazin while you're at it, the local towns. But you know that boy that's troubled, troubled by evil spirits? Bring him. Bring him here. And so out the runners go. They're running out into the neighborhood to go and gather people in. Spreading the word. Meanwhile, the service has ended. So people are running out. Service is finishing up. And uh, Mark's anxious to move us on in the story. So have a look what he says next. Uh, verse 29. As, as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Well, you can read between the lines here just a little bit. It's been an exciting morning, hasn't it? And the fishermen are starting to get hungry, all of this excitement and activity. You know, they're big blokes. And so soon Peter pipes up with an invitation, you know, probably responding to the rumbling of his tummy. He says, hey, fellas, do you know what? If you come back to my place, my mother-in-law's there, and she does a lovely Sabbath spread. There'll be some really good food there. Earlier this year, I had a similar experience with Dickie. Um, <laughs> who is not here. <laughs> uh, I got taken, I was invited to lunch at the Shipley's house, but instead we were diverted and taken off to the mother-in-law. Thank you so much, Edwina. <laughs> what a lovely lunch. Some things just don't change in the culture, do they? Mother-in-law's cooking delicious meals. 
Anyway, you can imagine Peter's distress as he gets to the doorstep and he opens the front door, expecting the smell of roast dinner to hit him as he comes into the house. But nothing. Verse 30, Simon's mother-in-law, you see, was in bed with a fever. And they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. So, so Peter's mother-in-law is incapacitated, but they do the best thing for her. They tell Jesus. And it's here I want you to see Jesus' personal touch. Could Jesus have just spoken a few words like he had just done in the synagogue? Well, of course he, of course he could. He had the authority. In fact, that's how Luke reports this incident, because he's trying to emphasize something slightly different. Luke gives the most strange account of this healing. He says that, that Jesus stood over Peter's mother-in-law and rebuked the fever. I mean, in our language, that sounds very strange, doesn't it? Naughty fever, go away sort of thing. A command to the, the sickness, and it leaves. But instead, Mark here reports he fills in more of the detail, and you got to pick up those tiny details. Jesus took her hand and helped her up. It's gentle, isn't it? It's loving. It's really concerned, and yet, yet it's actually oh so powerful when you think of it. It's that gentle power, isn't it? I mean, I don't know if you've ever thought about this with a lot of the miracles that Jesus does. He has this unshakable confidence as he acts I mean, imagine going to a sick woman, lying, sweating and shivering with a fever in her bed. Imagine you or I going to that person and, and just having the confidence to take their hand and lift them. <laughs> it's quite something, isn't it? It'd be hugely presumptuous, wouldn't it? Or perhaps even callous, unless you knew without any shadow of a doubt that there was going to be a response. An absolute total healing, an absolute total restoration at your very touch. And yet this is what we see with Jesus, this power and yet amazing compassion and tenderness. See, I think Mark's trying to let us start to see, as we get into this, that people really mattered to Jesus. Not just crowds of people, but individuals really mattered to Jesus. There's that physical touch. And, and you continue to see it in what happens next. See, I assume Mark's using a little bit of hyperbole here, maybe, in, in, in verse 32, but have a look at how he continues. That evening, after sunset, people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. Verse 33, the whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Mark tells us the whole town gathered at the door. Can you imagine that? I mean, that must have been a sight. I mean, poor old um, Peter's mother-in-law with all of that going on the doorstep. You get this scene, don't you? It was after sunset. Do you remember? It's the Sabbath. There'll be restrictions about carrying people. You're not going to walk down the streets carrying a stretcher with a body on it on the Sabbath because you never know who might see you and what kind of trouble you might get into for that. So as soon as three stars appeared in the sky really close to each other, three stars they were looking for, as soon as apparently there was no red sky left in the west, that's the point at which you knew Sabbath is finished and now I can get on with it, now I can get, get some work going. 
And so immediately at that point, en masse, up with the stretchers, let's get to Jesus. They're bringing people to him in droves. All the sick, all the demonized in the whole town, the whole of Capernaum, which is a big town. And one by one, Jesus ministers to their individual needs. Now, Mark may not be saying that specifically. I think you see that pattern in the Gospels, don't you? At least, certainly here, it's like with every case of demon possessed, he's shutting up the demons. I mean, there's, there's an individual attention. And I guess it goes on late into the night as Jesus deals with each individual person. It, what I want you to see here is it's not like a sort of Harry Potter scene that you've got going on here, where you just whip out the wand and make an incantation over the crowd and kapoof, and everybody is, is better. Could Jesus have done that? Of course he could. He had the authority to do that. But that's not what you see in the Gospels. He talked to the sick. You get conversations between Jesus and sick people, don't you? He spoke words of challenge to them. He spoke encouragement to them. Your faith has made you well, he would say. Or go and sin no more. Those sorts of things. Jesus was inter interested in individuals and he spent himself and he spent his energy ministering one-to-one -one with people. It's quite staggering, isn't it? There's a really powerful example in chapter 6, actually, where the disciples are returning from a really busy mission trip. They've been sent out, they've done all kinds of crazy stuff, and they've come back to Jesus absolutely shattered. And clearly Jesus can see how tired they are. In chapter 6, verse 31, he says, it says this, because so many people were coming and going that they didn't even have a chance to eat, Jesus then said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Imagine what life is like for Jesus. See, this is about the best that Jesus can achieve for time off in ministry. This is Jesus' day off. <laughs> a bit of non-contact time in a boat full of shattered disciples. They know just the spot where they can go, take the boat over to, uh, where, where it's nice and remote, and they'll get a little bit of rest there. It's a well-earned R&R. But imagine the dismay on the fishermen's faces when they pull onto the shore and see coming over the ridge, you've got all these thousands of people waiting to meet them. But look at Jesus' response, verse 34 of chapter 6. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. You know, that word compassion, maybe you've heard this many times, it means something like gut-twisting from Jesus. It's a, it's a gut-twisting yearning for people. Jesus is broken by the sight of these people. It's quite staggering, isn't it? He, when he sees them, he just cannot possibly ignore their needs, despite his physical exhaustion. And so he ministers to them. Body and soul, he cares for them. Looking at this crowd, Jesus sees not just you know, disease and sickness and things like that. 
He sees spiritual hunger. He sees an, an ignorance because no one's taught them. They're shepherdless sheep. And the supposed shepherds that they're supposed to have, are just, they're just not looking after them. And so he can't ignore it. They don't know God and they don't know where to turn to find out. You know, later, in a few verses later, he will be caring for their physical needs. He feeds them. But his priority, right here in this verse, is their souls, isn't it? That's how Jesus saw the needs of people. That's how he loved. That's how he loved his neighbours. Everyone that was in front of him was Jesus' neighbour, wasn't it? And the people that we see in our town today, are they really any different from those people? Harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd? When you walk around the town, when you walk around this neighbourhood, shepherdless sheep. No clue, really, where to turn to find out about those things that are really most important for the good of their souls. They just don't know where to turn. And there's so many voices giving them suggestions. Do you ever look at people like that? Now, I want to challenge you to try and develop the kind of heart that Jesus had. A heart for people. And you're seeing what that looks like in this gospel, aren't you? I used to have an office on the second floor of a building in Kingston, right on the marketplace above Costa Coffee, and it overlooked the whole marketplace, busy, full of people all the time. What a challenge to look at those crowds every day and be moved for their souls. Perhaps we just, we just can't shut ourselves off too much sometimes, and we don't think about these things challenge to our priorities, isn't it? Will we make people a priority? See, people are not to be a means to an end. I personally, I don't know about you, I don't want to be in a huge church where nobody knows anyone. Do you? Do you really want, just want to be in one of these big churches where you just sit at the back and then leave quietly at the end? Your neighbours by which I mean any person that you encounter. With all the best evangelistic zeal, your neighbours must never become projects. We mustn't treat people just like things. They're people, they're individuals. They're made in God's image with value and dignity and worth. And that's how Jesus saw people, always, isn't it? You must get to know people, love them, care for them. That was Jesus' priority, and it must be ours, mustn't it? So that's his first priority that you see here. I hope you'll see that. And we'll see it more and more clearly as we go through the gospel too. His priority was people all the time. Another priority for Jesus though was prayer. That's where we go next. Prayer. So after doubtless a long and emotional draining night where people have come to the doorstep, remember? Everyone's there. And he's ministering to them one after the other after the other. All the sick of the town. Well, the very next thing that Mark tells us in verse 35 is that very early in the morning, while it's still dark, so we haven't had any daylight yet, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. I don't know how much sleep Jesus got. <laughs> I don't know how much he needed. People seem to need different amounts of sleep, don't they? Five hours, six hours? Who knows? 
But in actual fact, I don't think Mark's teaching us about sleep habits. He's not really trying to encourage us about that or, or teach us about that. He's teaching us about priorities, isn't he? Much more important. Drained as he was and about to face another, no doubt, intense day with huge demands on him, Jesus knew that his most important need at that moment was get up and, and pray. So even before sunrise, while the rest of the house clearly is still sleeping, he took that little opportunity when there was no other demands currently on his time because people were unconscious to go and get out to a place where he could spend some time in prayer. It's an interesting priority, isn't it? Robert Murray McShane wrote in a letter to a student, he said this, he said, above all, keep much in the presence of God. Never see the face of man till you've seen his face, who is our life, our all. It's a really great little line to keep in your mind, isn't it? Never see the face of man till you've seen the face of God. Make that your priority every day. You know, we could do a whole series on prayer, and, and doubtless we will visit the subject over and over again. But I want to lay out this simple challenge this morning and just ask you, is, pri- is prayer a priority for you? Is it up there as you, you know, must do things? Well, I don't want to give you the same old platitudes that I'm sure you've heard over and over again or come out with all of the cliches. One of my favorites is, you know, that the old um, seven days without prayer makes one week. Yeah? I'm not, I'm not going to tell you those things. You know all of that, don't you? But please just think about this as we look at this story. And what I want you to see, just really, really clear, it's a simple thought. If Jesus, the Son of God, with all of his authority, felt the urgent need to get out of bed very early, says Mark, to get some alone time in prayer, how much more do we need it? Just think about that. You know, some people, they want to say things like, you know, oh, I just pray throughout the day. All my life is, is prayer. Yes, but even Jesus got up and felt he needed to find time to pray. Now, if you're struggling with this, and, and really, you know, especially if you're young, well, who, who doesn't? Who doesn't struggle with prayer? Prayer is described as wrestling and struggling in, in the Bible, isn't it? If you're struggling with this, well, what will you do? What are you, re- really, what are you going to do? I, I've never spoken to a Christian that thinks that they've got their prayer life absolutely nailed down and sorted. So what are you going to do about it? How will you make it a higher priority? Well, I can just offer you a few little bits of advice if it's a struggle for you. First of all, I've always found it helpful to start small and build upwards. It's the same with, it, with developing any habit, though, isn't it, really? If you resolve to go from zero to one or two hours in the morning before breakfast at 5 a.m., well, then chances are that you won't be able to keep it up, will you? You're, you're going to fall on your face. So start small. Get, get yourself up maybe five or ten minutes earlier than you normally, normally do. Get an alarm clock if you haven't got one. And make sure you start doing it tomorrow, otherwise it will never happen, will it? If your mornings are hectic, find the first quiet moment that you can. And you might have to be creative about that. Perhaps you need to leave your house ten minutes earlier than you normally do. I know people who've who've on the way to work, left ten minutes early, found a car park. Just sat in a car park, prayed. 
Or get to your desk early before the business of the day starts and pray there. Use your creativity. Find the, the solutions are out there. But pray. Make it a priority. Well, what will you pray? What will you pray? You know, you ever had that where you, you sit down and think, right, I'm going to pray. And you set a half an hour aside and you sit down and think, well, I don't know what to pray. What do I pray? Well, it's, it's very simple, isn't it? Pray through, pray through some verses of the Bible, maybe. Pray for your family. Pray for your friends. Pray for your church. Pray about the day that's lying ahead of you. Bring everything to God in prayer. Isn't that what we try to teach our children? Keep that conversation with your father. And for those of you who are able to embrace new technology, can I commend to you a nice little app that we used in Kingston called Prayer Mate. Absolutely brilliant. It actually creates prayer lists for you. You just tap it and then just swipe across and it takes you through all your prayer lists. And you can put everything in there. I just dumped the whole church directory in that. So if you're in the church directory, you're already on my prayer list. Isn't that an incentive to go and tell Liz that you want to make sure that you're in the church directory? You'll be on my prayer list. And I can write little notes about you on there and everything. And hope that nobody ever finds my phone and hacks into it. <laughs> Pray. Pray. We know it's important, don't we? But it's all about priorities. And Jesus put a really high priority on people and on prayer, and on praying for people. And thirdly, interestingly in this text, he has a very high priority on preaching. Please don't miss this. It's really important in chapter 1. Why does Jesus have a priority about preaching? Well, it's because Jesus' priority is about souls, not bodies. Now, they're not mutually exclusive, and I'm not saying Jesus didn't... Clearly, Jesus cared about bodies, didn't he? the amount of healing and care that he gave. But his priority was souls, souls. Look at what happens next, verse 36. Simon and his companions went to look for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone's looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he travelled throughout Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and driving out demons. You can see what's happened there, haven't you? Peter's you know, woken up in his house, and it's quiet, and then there's a knock on the door. And immediately again, there's the people. They're coming from further afield now, all coming to mother-in-law's house. Oh, it's probably his house, actually, isn't it? They're coming to the house. They're knocking. They're bringing the sick people to Jesus. And they go to where Jesus should be in his bed, and he's not there, and the sheets are cold. And his sandals are not by the door. He's gone out. So with the instincts of a sniffer dog, I guess, Peter goes out looking and manages to track down Jesus, even in an isolated place. And Jesus' prayer is broken by an exclamation there, isn't it? Everyone's looking for you, Jesus. Luke records in this same incident, that the crowds actually try to stop Jesus leaving Capernaum. They don't want him to go. And I'm sure that the disciples would have agreed with that. I think they would have agreed. Jesus' ministry was doing phenomenally well here in Capernaum, wasn't it? What a great start to his ministry. He'd been a big hit in Capernaum. He wasn't always a big hit. And the crowds were gathering from the whole region. 
It's a good strategic place. You know, you're by the sea. Why not set up a base of operations here, Jesus? Why not settle here? This is a good place. You can stay at Peter's house. You've got your accommodation sorted out. Really easy, isn't it? You've got fish from the lake, place to sleep. Fantastic cook, apparently, to, to cook the dinner. Think of the opportunities. They could run a healing center. They could set up the most amazing hospital the world had ever seen. Walk in one door and out the other, healed. Jesus could eradicate all the sickness. He could eradicate all of the demons from the area, release the whole area from from captivity. But that is not Jesus' priority. He's very explicit, isn't he? Let's move on, he says. Oh, they, they want me to stay here. Let's move on. Let's visit the other villages so that I can preach in them also. I want to preach. That is why I have come. That's why I've come. Not to eradicate disease. Not to free the demonized from their bondage. Those, those are the wonderful and the inevitable side effects of Jesus coming, aren't they? They can't help but happen. How could Jesus not do that? But they're not the priority. The priority is his message. That's how Mark even introduces him, doesn't it? Jesus came preaching. The kingdom is near. Repent and believe the good news. So clear, isn't it? Right from the lips of Jesus. It wasn't the crowds. It was the individuals. It was the people. It was the souls. It was the souls. You know, the crowds had other priorities, didn't they? They wanted to have whole bodies and they wanted to have full bellies. That's why they came to Jesus. Offer them that and the crowds will keep growing. No doubt by night three, you could have your two million people standing in front of you. But it's not Jesus' priority. Jesus wasn't enamored by fickle crowds like that. And don't get me wrong, again, he cared about bodies, but his priority was souls. And it should be the same for us. The Apostle Paul put it very succinctly. He said this, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to all who believe. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. You know, heal the body and you've gained someone maybe a few more years, maybe a bit of a better quality of life. Fill the belly and they'll be hungry maybe in a few hours' time. But save the soul. And they have eternal life. Stakes are so much higher, aren't they? How can we even compare the two? But we must get the balance right. It's not either or. I think um, John Piper's statement for his church, Bethlehem Church in Minneapolis, gets it about right. It's a great little catch line. He says this. We care, this is a declaration of the church, we care about all human suffering, especially eternal suffering. And that should be our priority, shouldn't it? So get a shoebox. Get a shoebox, fill it, and pray. Pray that it will lead to the saving of a soul. It's the proclamation of the gospel that is the only remedy for later suffering, for eternal suffering. It's the gospel that proclaims a way that we can be right with God. We want people to know that, don't we? How they can be right with their creator. Good news of a saviour who's given his life so that you can be forgiven and your soul saved. 
not just your body made whole. Your body matters. Paying your bills matters. Feeding your children matter. They're very real problems. But as Jesus put it, what good is it to gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul? Jesus' priority. People, prayer, preaching, souls. When it comes to gathering a crowd, you know, there are some very easy ways to gather a crowd. There's easy answers to drawing people in, but there are also harder answers to doing it. It's relatively easy, actually, to go for physical needs. And I guess you probably know that. that that's, that's what a lot of churches will settle for. You know, we'll offer all kinds of services to the community around us. We'll do all kinds of good things. And they are good things. They are good things. Food banks, childcare, youth activities, friendship groups, drop-ins, all of that sort of stuff. They are things we should care about. But they are, really, they are the inevitable side effect of having a heart like Christ's, which is what the church should do. Much harder to make souls your priority, but far more important. I love that the team running Pebbles haven't taken the easy route. They have quite a countercultural approach to running a mums and tots group. It's rare to find a church running that kind of group that actually puts a Bible talk in for the children so that we can preach the good news to them. So pray for them. Pray for that work. It's so crucial, isn't it? Growth for a group like that will be much slower. It will. It may not produce as much fruit, but we pray it will produce fruit that will last. So will you nurture a heart for people? How can you show compassion for your neighbours in Chesterfield? Will you make prayer a priority? Will you be there on Wednesday night? Will you? Will you care enough for people to prioritise their souls? Jesus' priorities.